Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn to Joshua chapter 20 as we continue on, making our way through this Old Testament book of the Bible. Tonight we'll be reading Joshua chapter 20 in its entirety, reading about these cities of refuge. There we read, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They may be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for the judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. And the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled." So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arbam, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the uh, tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel. And for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger, till he stood before the congregation. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I think all of you have had that moment like I have, one of those awkward, and awkward parenting moments when you understand with your children that the child that you rebuked or are trying to correct, the one that you think is the offending party, is actually not the offender. As you find out a few more details, you realize that you have assessed the situation wrongly. You have jumped to a wrong conclusion and the innocent party is being punished or unjustly blamed. I know that has happened in my house and as a result I've had to apologize to my children telling them that sometimes uh, dad gets things wrong and I have to ask for their forgiveness. Because one of the ultimate injustices is for the innocent to be punished unjustly. God is a God of justice, and justice cuts both ways. Yes, justice is to punish the wrongdoer, but it's also to protect the innocent. And therefore, we should be grateful for justice. 
What we read here in the book of Joshua is that God is very concerned with justice, that the lawbreaker be punished, no doubt, but also that the innocent would be protected, to which I think everyone would agree. But sometimes, as you know, justice is not always cut and dry, black and white. How about when something happens unintentionally, when there's even tragic and perhaps fatal results? There is not wrongdoing per se, at least not intentional wrongdoing. Yet there are consequences. There is perhaps even the loss of life. How is there to be justice in that situation? Well, we see tonight in Joshua chapter 20 that God makes provision for even that in the establishment of these cities of refuge in Israel. And through these cities of refuge, he upholds justice for both parties, as we will see. And I think through this, we will see several aspects of God's justice that we should be very thankful for. And so I want to look at this tonight under uh, a couple different points. First, the cities of refuge, what are they? Second, the principles of God's justice. And then third, our city of refuge. First, the cities of refuge. As you know, it's been a a little while since we've been in Joshua, so let me review with you that we are in the third section of this book. The first section is the people enter into the land. The second is where they conquer the land. And now we are in the third part where they have divided the land and are establishing themselves in the land. And so chapters 13 through 19 that we looked at a couple weeks ago was the dividing of the land. And that this land was to be divided amongst the tribes as a part of their inhabitants and their inheritance. And what we see here in chapter 20 and 21 is special provisions, special designation of cities and lands to be used for a special purpose. Chapter 20 that we're looking at tonight are these cities of refuge. Chapter 21 that we will look at, I think, in two weeks will be the land to be used for the Levites. But even as we enter into chapter 20 and as we look at chapter 21 later on, we see two principles. We see justice and religion. We see justice and worship. That for the people of God to be established here in the Old Testament as a nation, to at least be a successful nation, you need civil as well as religious rule. In other words, you need justice and morality. And this is something that is true for every civil society. This is something that our founding fathers knew very well. Listen to a few of our founding fathers. First, from John Adams. He says, It is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue or morality. John Quincy Adams, his son, writes this, There are three points of doctrine, the belief of which forms the foundation of all morality. The first is the existence of God. The second is the immorality, or excuse me, immortality of the human soul. And the third is the future state of rewards 
and punishment. Suppose it possible for a man to disbelieve either of these three articles of faith, and that man will have no conscience, Quincy Adams says. He'll have no other law than that of a tiger or of a shark. The laws of man may bind him in chains or may even put him to death, but they can never make him wise, virtuous, or happy. One more quote from Benjamin Franklin, who was no friend of Christianity, and yet even he writes this, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. So in other words, what our founding fathers, if I could summarize what they are saying, they're saying that without morality, there can be no justice. You can establish law after law after law, and if there is not morality which self-governs people in their own conscience, then we are a culture in chaos because you have no ground in which to build laws. If society doesn't have at least a basic understanding of what is right and wrong, And we know that right and wrong must be established by God and that God gives that to us. And whereas this is not to be a commentary on our current situation or our current cultural uh, climate, we see in our own society, the further we get from biblical morality, the more and more breakdown of justice we have. And what is the government's answer? Well, the government's answer is the only answer that they have, and that is to establish more laws. As Benjamin Franklin said, there's more need of masters. But the problem is, as I mentioned, no laws or earthly masters can contain them because they have rejected the great master, the ultimate master. They have rejected God as Lord over all. And so, as we see, justice and morality are essential components to civil society. So as we come then to to chapter 20, we see that the Lord tells Joshua to establish these cities of refuge. And this is not a foreign concept, that this was something that was told to Moses. In fact, uh, the Lord mentions that there at the end of verse 2, these cities of refuge which I spoke to you through Moses. And in fact, if you would look at Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, you see very clearly that these were laid out by God to Moses. So what are these cities? Well, turn with me to to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Joshua 20 gives an idea of what these cities of refuge are, but uh, Deuteronomy 19 gives a a helpful scenario of where these cities Uh, cities might come into play. And we see in Deuteronomy 19, verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle, strikes his neighbor so that he dies, He may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I commanded you, 
you shall set apart these cities. So we see the principle here, and we see an example of a person going out and cutting wood and unintentionally killing his neighbor as a result of the axe flying out of his hand or the axe breaking and striking his neighbor or his brother or his friend. We see that this was an unintentional killing, that there is no hate, there is no malice. They did not do it maliciously or deliberately or intentionally. And so these cities were places that the manslayer, as they are called, could go. Otherwise, the the family of the person that was uh, killed or uh, murdered may want to avenge the loss. They might want to bring about the death of the one that brought about the death of their loved one. And they may not care if it was intentional or unintentional. They may think, well, an eye for an eye. And want to bring about this type of justice upon this person. And so these cities would provide justice. And they would have to use discernment to understand the situation. So that they would understand that this was done unintentionally. Just because someone died does not mean that the same punishment should be issued as one who intentionally committed murder. As one commentator says, a man without a murderer's heart should not suffer a murderer's punishment. And yet you can understand how this might be a sort of loophole. Perhaps, if someone was intending to kill someone, you might want to try to use this approach. Well, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, we read this, But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you, that this, these cities were not to be a place that would harbor criminals or those that had broken the law. This is safe havens for the innocent, in a sense, only. Well, I want us to look tonight then of several principles of God's justice. And these may not come as a surprise to you, but they don't come as a surprise to you because many of these are used in our own judicial system. That is because our judicial system is based upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. And they are just and they are right and our country is better off because we use the standards of uh, God's right and wrong. But the first thing that I think we see about the principles of God's justice is we see judicial process, do we not? That the person that has killed this person unintentionally can flee to this city. And there, as we read in Joshua chapter 20, they are to go to the gates. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that that is where the elders of that city would be set up. The leaders of that day would hold court and they would determine disputes. And the person that has done this, as it says in verse 4, shall explain their case to the elders of the city. And after he has given the opportunity or has been given the opportunity to tell what has happened and hearing this testimony, the, the elders are to give him refuge, at least give him refuge temporarily. In other words, they are to believe his story. They are to 
believe he is truly telling the truth, that he is innocent. And so, again, we see that there is this idea of innocence until proven guilty. But that does not mean that there is not to be a trial. As it goes on to say in verse 6 of Joshua 20, that he's to remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. And so this city of refuge wasn't to circumvent a trial. No, there would be a trial. Just as Proverbs 18.7 says, the one who states his case first seems right till the other comes and examines him. And so both the accused and perhaps the accuser uh, have an opportunity to present their case. And they do so before their peers, I think, as it would seem here, as they stand before the congregation. And so we see this idea of proper judicial process here in Joshua 20. Second, we see that they are to determine intentions. They are to determine motivation. There's to be a distinguishing factor between action and motives. That if someone killed unintentionally, well, how do you know if it is unintentional? Well, as it says both in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Joshua 20, that there was no hate, as it says there at the end of verse 5. And he did not hate him in the past. And so there is no motivation, no hatred there. Hatred is something of the heart. And so, again, I think God is teaching his people here that they are to judge in the same way that he judges. Not just based on action, but based on the heart. Again, First Samuel 18 or excuse me, sixteen seven says, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we're to base our judgments on the heart as well, or at least on the intentions and not just on the actions. But again, we're not God. We can't see the heart. And so, yes, can we be fooled and manipulated? Absolutely. But God cannot be. So we can get away with things with others, but we cannot get away with things ultimately with God. That's why I oftentimes say to my children, you can fool mommy or daddy. Not often, but you can, but you can't fool God. And there, I think, is a a takeaway for all of life here with this principle. Just because somebody has done something to you that has hurt you or offended you, don't assume you know just on the basis of their actions or on the basis of even their words. Matthew 18 tells us that we are to go to them. And maybe you'll find out that their actions or their words were intentional and it gives them an opportunity to perhaps confess their sins if they need to. But perhaps their words or their actions were unintended and they didn't even realize their offense. But the point is, if you don't go to them, you can never have it be resolved or to make judgments of the hearts and again i think the principle for us is to be charitable to be loving and forgiving even as god and christ has forgiven us well the third principle then uh we see here that god establishes is the accessibility to justice if you were to take a map and to look at israel You would see that these six cities were equally spread out. 
In other words, that Israel was not to place undue burden on someone to get to them that were living far away. They weren't to be clustered together. Rather, they were to be spread apart. Again, I think it demonstrates that there was not to be favor of one area or one tribe over another. The idea, again, here is that there is to be justice for all. We read in Deuteronomy 19, again, that the roads were to be prepared and clear. And the cities were to be well marked off so that everyone would know where to go and how to get there. And they would have an easy path in order to get there if need be. Also, we read that these cities were always to be open. Their gates were to remain open at all times, which, again, I think demonstrates that there was to be justice at all times. The fourth principle that we see is that there is a non-prejudicial justice. Further demonstrating that these cities were to be justice for all, we read this, that these were not only to be for the Israelites, but they were to be for the sojourner as well. You see this in verse 9. These cities were designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. That if there was anyone that was a refugee or an exile or a sojourner in the land, regardless of their ethnic makeup, they were to be provided the same type of justice. This wasn't just justice to the Jews. This was justice to the Gentile as well. Again, another principle that we read in Deuteronomy 35, that there was to be no ransom taken. In other words, the the rich couldn't buy their justice. A rich man accused of killing someone couldn't just say to the elders, well, you know, thanks for the offer, but uh, can we handle this in in a different manner? I would rather just be able to go home to my own hometown and my own house. Can we just settle this between the two of us and give a a little money and call it a day. No, there was to be no bribes, no ransoms, no backhanded deals. All were to be treated the same, both great and small, both rich and poor, both Jew and Gentile. Again, justice was to be non-prejudicial. Well, fifth then, we also see one other principle that I think is important, that this City of refuge, these cities of refuge uphold life. The genius of this arrangement is that it takes life seriously on both sides, with both parties involved. It protects the life of the innocent that acted unintentionally, gives refuge and protects his or her life, but it also acknowledges that there was life lost in that situation. And that this person's actions, regardless of them being uh, unintentional in nature, caused loss. And that life was precious too. It was precious to God. It was precious to that person's family. And it would be unfair if that person just, in a sense, went on living life like they had before. A family of the lost member might have a hard time seeing them in daily life. And so it was a city of refuge, but in some ways it was also a city of containment. That they were to remain in that city. In fact, we read in these passages that if this person that went to the cities, if they ever left the city before the time that they could, the family that had the loss could bring about vengeance for their loss. And that family would be held guiltless. So again, as one commentator said, these 
were both cities of refuge as well as, in a sense, a city that was a prison for this person, at least for a time. But again, what another wonderful provision that there was the ability to be released from this city. And that release would come at the death of the high priest. That in a sense, all wrongdoings were buried with the high priest. That those who sought refuge could be released to their normal life. They could be brought back to their hometown and to their house once the high priest of that time died. And so there would be an end to their sentence, so as to speak. And so we see several aspects of of justice, God's justice in this chapter. And as I said at the beginning, we're probably not too surprised by these because our justice system is rightly built on these principles, principles that are right and and equitable, uh, that they're still true today and relevant for today as they were when they were given over 3,000 years ago, which demonstrates that that God's law, God's truth is, is timeless. Well, third, then, we see our city of refuge. If you're with us this morning, we heard from First Peter that the Old Testament prophets had a ministry of grace. And perhaps that was a, a surprise to many, probably not a surprise to you who are uh, Bible scholars that come here on Sunday night. But we see again the idea of, of mercy and grace being given, even in this idea of these cities of refuge that Mercy and grace is not foreign to the Old Testament. God is the God of mercy and of grace. That this was his idea. Uh, Justice does not rule out mercy. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And there is no greater place where that is epitomized than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both justice and mercy are perfectly fulfilled at the cross of Christ. That there, grace upon grace is given. But it's not a cheap grace. It's not God overlooking an offense or sins that were done wrong. No, justice was rendered. But instead of justice being rendered upon us, it was rendered upon His Son. Christ is the atonement, the propitiation, the wrath bearer for us. So that we may gain His favor. We may gain His grace and mercy. And therefore, when we understand that, then we see the parallels between these cities of refuge and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it primarily in several different ways. We see the need for refuge, do we not? We understand what we have done in the sight of God and what we have committed. And therefore, we need to have a refuge. We need to seek this place where we can be safe, a fortress in which we can run into and be saved from the rightful judgment that would fall upon us. Earlier we read from Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, that Jesus truly is our mighty fortress and so we are in need of refuge and we have refuge in Jesus Christ but second point then is we need to come to him that we need to 
find refuge in him. Just like those that found themselves in need of refuge in this kind of situation would have to go and flee to this place. They would have to go into the city. That the manslayer couldn't say, well, I'll just go near the city. I'll just camp outside of it. Or perhaps I'll go in there just for a little while, and then later I will leave. No, they must come in, and they must stay for the allotted amount of time. And the same is true for us, that we are not to just come near unto Christ. We are to come to Christ and find our refuge in Christ and to never leave that refuge place. A third principle that we see with these cities of refuge in parallel to Christ is that this refuge is always open. And it's always open to all. All that would come to him. The cities were to be available to the sojourner, to the Gentiles as much as the Jew, the poor as much as the rich. And so we see that the Lord does not discriminate in who may come to him. And again, in the New Testament, we see the parallels of this, that Ephesians 2, he's broken down the dividing wall in his flesh, the wall of hostility. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. God calls all men and women to himself. It's our privilege to preach Christ to all. The fourth principle that we see here is that it's always available. Again, the cities were to always remain open. The gates were never to be closed. So too the offer of Christ goes out to all to come to Christ at any time. But the time is of the essence. Just as Joshua 20 says that the manslayer should flee to this city. He's not to delay or say, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it next week. I know this situation has happened. No, they're to make haste and flee. In the same way, today is the day of salvation. And so if you have not placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, today is that day in which you need to do that before the impending judgment may strike. Don't think, well, I'll have tomorrow, I'll have next week or a month from now. No, today is the day that we must Come unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fifth, we see the greatest parallel, perhaps, that the full atonement would be made at the death of the high priest. That the sentence would remain until the death of the high priest in Israel at that time. The full condemnation, the guilt and stigma would then be done away when the high priest died. In a sense, all would be buried with the high priest. Again, does this not so beautifully point to the ultimate high priest? That all of our sins, all of our condemnation, all of our guilt was taken by him. It was, in a sense, buried with him, and we bear it no more. As the choir so wonderfully sang that, Rich him, it's my sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Because we've had the death of our high priest, we live in the freedom of the forgiveness of 
sin and guilt and condemnation that has been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a result, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that is our ultimate refuge, our city of refuge. And one day that city of God, that true dwelling place of God, will dwell with man. And then we will have eternal refuge. We will have refuge from all sin, from all death, from all tears, and from all pain. But until that day, let us keep finding our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, our true city of refuge. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for these principles that you establish to us. Lord, even more so, we are thankful that you have given us not the justice that we deserve, but rather have given mercy. And instead of the mercy being given to your son, the justice was given to him. And the full wrath, the full payment, the full atonement for our sins was laid upon him so that we may now go free, that we would no longer bear those sins, that condemnation or that guilt. Lord, may we truly live in that freedom as we dwell with the true city of refuge, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.